We are so glad that you joined us today. We know that God wants to do something great in you and through you, and we want to hear about it. So if you can take a moment and share with us your story in the City Chapel app in the Amen Corner. Thanks again for joining us today. We hope you enjoy today's message. God's promises, in case you don't know, are found in a little book called the Bible. So open it every once in a while. Read it every once in a while. Because within those pages, we have the, the promises of God for you and for me. And so we, we talked a lot about what some of those promises are. Uh, and, then, and, then, and then last week, actually, we talked about one of the great hindrances to the promises is shame. One of the great hindrances to us taking the land, one of, really the first enemy that the children of Israel dealt with was the shame, or, or as God called it, the reproach of Egypt. So sometimes where you've been holds you back from where God wants you to go. And uh, I preached about that last week, and if you want to hear it, the, the podcast is available online. But um, I, I, I felt so strongly about that. We talked about how, how, how shame, the best way to defeat shame is in circles. So, so as groups, groups of people come together and we face each other, we learn to lay down our past and our shame together. And so it's not a plug for small groups, but it is a plug for small groups. You need to get into a small group because that's the greatest weapon against shame. So long as you are sitting here in church in rows, you are not going to be able to release the burden of shame that the enemy has put on you. And you'll come, you'll listen to a sermon, and you'll say amen, like, probably once, because, you know, there's only a couple of you that actually say it very often. So, like, like, one, like you'll say something, you know, every once in a while, or you laugh at a joke or something, and then you'll, 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 you'll get, you get some revelation. And revelation is good, but you're not going to get lighter. You're not going to release the weight that's on your shoulders until you come into a small group of people where you can be known and where you can work through life's issues with them. It's so important. And so uh, we have a table, by the way, that's going to be outside at the end of service. And um, we have a girl riding a dinosaur. Just so you don't miss the table, uh, there will be a girl riding a dinosaur by the table. That's the table you need to go to. If you're not a part of a small group, go talk to the girl riding the dinosaur next to the table with all the small group information on it. She will get you hooked up. we got several groups meeting throughout the week um, at various places. One uh, meeting tonight. We have various groups, and, and 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 the goal is to have all of City Chapel um, moving together, releasing the burdens of our past together, dealing with the weight of shame together. We do it together, and it's so important that we do it together. Which, by the way, also um, this week today starts something that we're calling the Church That Eats Together. Speaking of together, we like to eat. So um, uh, we got we got a uh, church that eats together um, challenge Sunday today until Saturday next week. So really today and then all of this week we are challenging you all uh, at City Chapel to eat together, um, gain a few pounds. Casey's Casey's excited about it. you know get, go out to eat, get something tasty, get something good. I mean go to Ruth's Chris Steakhouse if you want to. Because, because because it's good to, to eat together, right? And so, and so what we want you to do is we want you to eat with somebody else. Um, maybe they're not even from this church. Maybe they're just somebody that you work with. But a church that eats together probably does other awesome things together. So the goal is that you that you would build these relationships and these friendships and you eat together. And so we're going to help you out with this because um, everybody who eats together and, and checks in on Facebook at City Chapel and hashtag Church That Eats Together, uh, I'm, it's, it, it's going to show up on my feed and I'm going to save it. And then next Sunday we're going to draw for, for one of those couples or multiple people, however many were there. And then the church is just going to pay for that meal. So keep your receipt, hold on to your receipt. And you might just eat together for free because that's even better than eating together. So, um, so anyway, it's good. why are we doing that? Because it's an incentive to get you to eat together. We're trying to trick you into eating <laughs> together. That's what it's all about. Um, because we're going to – because some people – you know, because some churches – are, are just a building, but the church is never meant to be a building. The church is people. So we're going to spend money to build people and have people build buildings, not the other way around. So we're going to, we're going to, we're going to build people and use buildings, not build buildings and use people. So we're going to spend some money to pay for your lunch or your meal or your Starbucks or whatever. By the way, 
from 2 to 5 p.m. Starbucks today and tomorrow. Buy one macchiato, get one free. Come on, somebody. Hello. So, perfect excuse to eat together. Buy one for you and then give the other one away. Um, but that's what we talked about last week. But this week, I want to step into chapter 6 of the book of Joshua. And um, this is really where uh, things get real, right? Uh, the people of Israel cross through the Jordan. God parts it for them miraculously. They, they go to Gilgal, and in Gilgal, they are circumcised, and the weight of, or the reproach of Egypt is rolled off of them, and now they are free. And then, like, like it's all roses and raindrops and unicorns after that. <laughs> I always get surprised. I always get surprised with people who like, like, like they come to God and you know, like they, they, they accept Jesus into their heart and God's saved and they actually expect things to get better. <laughs> I, I've been saved for a while. So uh, I have figured out that that's actually the reverse of reality. That is the upside down version. Because. Because you look at the, the children of Israel, right? They, 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 they step into the promised land. Wow, woo, God's miraculously doing stuff. This is amazing. And then if you read the rest of the book of Joshua, you're going to find that Joshua has to face 31 different kings that are out to kill him. It's amazing. He hardly had to face anything when he was wandering around in the wilderness. And he definitely didn't have to face anything when he was enslaved in Egypt. But there's something about... Stepping into the promises of God that the enemy just doesn't like that. And if you really want to, to be attacked, if you really want to have some enemies coming against you, if you really want to have a bad week, decide to follow Jesus. <laughs> Jesus loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Um, but it's true. And I don't, I don't know, maybe we just don't preach that enough. Maybe we, maybe people get a wrong idea. Maybe they listen to too much Christian music. But at some point, at some point, like you have to understand that the enemy doesn't care if you're in Egypt. The enemy's happy he leaves you alone when you're in Egypt. And he slightly cares when you come out of Egypt. But he gets really ticked off. When you decide to step into his territory and his ground and take back what is rightfully yours, that's when the battle starts. What if salvation isn't a finish line? What if it's just a starting line? What if we thought we got to get people over that line and then everything's good? But really what happens is that is the start of the adventure. That is the start of the conflict. That is the start of the enemy. So I was talking to somebody even, even this morning. I said, how was your week? And she's telling me how bad her week was. And I said, oh, good. So you're following Jesus. This is good. Things are going along just according to plan. Wonderful. My week wasn't so great either. Uh, congratulations. You're stepping into new territory. Because any time that you step into new territory, any time you take back what, all these things, I mean, I mean, like your family, right? So here's a flag of the family. Do you really think, do you really think that the enemy's just going to, just going to hand you your family back? Like, seriously, what, what do you think, what do you think you spent all the time and effort scheming in order to, to, to sow lies and division among, between husband and wife and between kids and parents and between siblings and all of the effort that, that, that he's put into programming their minds and setting them up for failure and then teaching them to, to, to live with shame and to live with guilt. And he's just going to just let all of that go? Just because you wrote something at City Chapel and stuck it in a little bucket with some sand in it? Awesome buckets with sand. Thank you, whoever designed those. It's wonderful. But truthfully, it doesn't make much sense. And actually, um, the, the, the book of Joshua chapter 6 starts with this. 6 verse 1 says, now, now Jericho, which is the first fortified city across the Jordan, Jericho was securely uh, shut up because of the children of Israel. None went out and none came in. Now, in Joshua chapter 6, it doesn't tell you this. But uh, Jewish scholars believe, and the book of Deuteronomy confirms, that, that before uh, the Jews would have declared war on Jericho, that they would have sent uh, a messenger first. And the messenger was supposed to say this, God, the creator of the universe, has promised this land to our forefathers. We are now here to claim our inheritance. We ask that you leave 
peacefully. <laughs> now God did that because he's, he's, not, he's not a mean God. He doesn't want to destroy people. He's giving them an out. He's saying, look, God who delivered us from Egypt, God who just parted the, 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 the River Jordan and brought us to this place, that God has promised us this land, and we are here to reclaim what is ours. We are here to take our inheritance, and if you want to leave, you can leave peacefully. And God made sure that his people always gave that offer to those that, he, that they were challenging. But the truth is, very few of those enemies actually took them up on the offer. And I think we would be naive to believe that our enemy is going to take us up on that offer as well. Instead, what Jericho does is they, they securely shut themselves up. They shut the doors. They bar, they deadbolt the locks so that none can go in and none can go out. Now, to, to, to really understand what that, what that looks like, because just as we're talking here, we're thinking probably a few walls around the city. Jericho was... Um, archaeologists believe it is either the or the oldest or the second oldest city in ancient civilization. It's certainly, they say, the oldest um, piece of land that was occupied because there was a time in which there were no cities as such, and so it was it was a, it was a common meeting ground about eleven thousand years ago, uh, and then and then about nine thousand years ago, nine thousand four hundred and some years ago, they they actually decided to join together the folks there and build buildings sort of together and create a bit of what we now know as, as a city. They had no idea what that was. So they were just creating it. They were, they were making the city. And uh, immediately they said, well, we need to have a tower, right? So, so there's, there, there's, there's archaeological evidence that there was a large tower and sort of a small wall around it. Well, well, what, what happened because, I mean, it was, it was the oldest uh, uh, civilized, urbanized sort of location. What would happen is, 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 is that city would, uh, would, would the, that generation would die off and things would crumple and, and they were still learning how to build stuff. And so they would just build on top of that. Uh, there's this, archaeologists have a particular name for it. I can't remember what it is, but it's basically where over thousands of years, a city is built on top of a city is built on top of a city is built on top of a city. So when they're uncovering it, right, they're digging, and then at each level, they have to look at, especially the pottery or the pre-pottery period, they have to look at the rocks and figure out just how old that particular city was, that particular layer was. Uh, and, so, and, and, and so that's how they found that Jericho was, they believe, the oldest urbanized Location there in the Fertile Crescent in the Middle East, and and it's been around for a really long time. In fact, they believe that these that these particular walls were built thousands of years before Joshua even arrived. These particular walls, which is interesting, because if you follow the biblical account of Noah, that means that these walls survived the flood. So they're kind of strong, is what I'm getting at. Uh, survived the flood, survived several prevailing armies. Survived, I mean, the Middle East was a place that, that was constantly in flux. One, one kingdom conquering another kingdom conquering another, uh, another. And somehow the walls of Jericho stayed intact. I actually made a slide for you to see sort of an idea of what the walls of Jericho would have looked like. This is a, a rough sort of computerized drawing of it. Uh, roughly about 17 feet or 20 feet would be the outside wall. And it was a, it was a double wall system. And so because they're located on a mound because of the many cities that they have built on top of, it's, it's ideal uh, strategic location. And so they, they have this massive wall about six feet thick and about 20 feet tall on the outside. And then there's about six acres worth of dirt and land. And oftentimes they would build homes inside of this area, race chariots around this area. And then there's another wall equally as tall as the previous wall. And what this doesn't show, like the grass dips down, they had, they had carved out six feet, uh, 12 feet wide and six feet deep uh, of out of straight rock, uh, a moat around the entire city. So six feet deep, 12 feet wide, this huge moat. And, and, and actually, archaeologists don't know how in the world they carved this out because they, they don't believe that they had uh, uh, pick, pickaxes and stuff like that at that time. So they have this little hand tool that they think <laughs> that these people chiseled away. I don't know how in the world that works through straight rock, you know what I'm saying? So, but somehow, this, this, this was one of the, the great wonders of the ancient world, the walls of Jericho. It was legendary, obviously. We don't even know how it appeared or how it was built. Uh, the Canaanites lived there, the children of Cain. We know that Cain 
uh, murdered his brother and went around the plant and started a bunch of cities. And so we don't know if there was some kind of supernatural power that helped help build these things or some kind of technology that we don't yet know that they had. But somehow there were some massive walls entirely circling the city. And there was one door. There was one gate in. And that gate was, you had to go up a hallway, about 40 foot tall hallway. And so when it says they securely shut it, it means they deadbolted that one door and probably poured a whole bunch of earth down that hallway so you could not get through. And if you started going through, they poured out oil and light on fire and it becomes a furnace. It's, I mean, they, they are ready to wait this one out. And this is what Jericho could do because this was their strongest asset. They didn't necessarily have an amazing army. They didn't have any kind of air force, but they had a fortress. And you come in to their land, they're going to retreat to their fortress. And actually, archaeologists found uh, huge um, uh, barrels and sacks full of, of grain. They believe that, these, that these, these folks, these Canaanites, could have lived for years inside of this fortress. They had a, a fresh spring that was flowing from underground that was located in the city. I mean, they were set. They were, they were good to go. I just think it's interesting, beyond the historical artifacts that I get fascinated with, and then I just ramble on and on during my sermons. But, but I find it interesting because it's so similar to some of the enemies that we face. That as we step into the land, as we step into the promised land, we step into our marriage, or we step into our kids' lives, and we decide, you know what? God is going to have the final say here. God is going to, to be elevated. God is going to be worshipped here in our home. God is going, I'm going to take this land back for God. I'm, I'm claiming this. I'm putting the stake in the ground. Sometimes, some enemies do not come at you and start throwing darts at you. They retreat to a fortress. A very old very layered, very strong, impenetrable fortress. It's interesting because sometimes like we think of the devil as, as, as sort of wrecking havoc in our life. Like, right? like he runs around and just kind of comes in and out like a blitzkrieg. But I think more often than not, honestly, Jericho gives us a picture of one of Satan's greatest tactics. And that is to retreat. To retreat, allow you to have some land... As long as he still gets his fortress. And he lives in the fortress. And he can survive for years. So often we think, yeah, 2017 is going to be better. And, and, and our enemy is like, yeah, and I'll stick around in my fortress. Because i got enough grain and fresh water to wait this thing out. Because he's not fighting a short-term battle. He's fighting a long-term war. And, 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 and some of the greatest strongholds in our life, strongholds or fortresses, are strongholds that have been there for a very long time. It's layer after layer after layer, sometimes generation after generation after generation. And if you think he's going to vacate his fortress because you decided things are going to be different for your family, you got another thought coming. <laughs> Joshua and the people of Israel walk onto the land, and there's no warriors, there's no darts, there's no shouts of war, there's no swords and shields. They're just massive, impenetrable walls. And an enemy that's hanging out, just waiting. Just waiting for them to try to settle down, just waiting for them to plant some crops, just waiting for them to try to establish some kind of government. And this is, this is the way that the enemy often deals with us. He allows us some space, but he never allows us complete ownership because it's dangerous. And so he, he, he gets behind these walls and these fortresses, and he, and, he, and he maintains some ground. This, by the way, is part of the cost of regression. You think about the 400 years that the children of Israel stayed in slavery, in bondage. Those are 400 years that this wall is getting taller. That's 400 years that this earth is getting thicker. That's 400 years that, the, that, that, that Jericho is getting further built up and built up and built up. And sometimes, you know, we, we do talk about the grace of God, and the grace of God is powerful. Anytime you turn to God, he, he will take you right where you are at, and he will make a way where there seems to be no way. But at the same time, i got to warn you about the cost 
of regression, the cost of allowing Satan a foothold in your life, the cost of allowing him a space in your family. Maybe it's not the big space. Maybe it's just a little space of compromise. Maybe it's just a small space in your mind or in your heart or in your emotions or in your desires. Maybe it's just a little bit of compromise. But the cost of him allowing allowing him to have a small land, he will not simply build a tent. He will build a tower. And from the tower, he will build a wall. And from the wall, he'll build a second wall. And he will so secure himself into your life. That you can't, you can't just get him out. God speaks to Joshua and he says, after the scripture tells us that Jericho was securely shut up because of the children of Israel, that none went out and none came in. The Lord said to Joshua, look! Exclamation point. Like God's excited, he's getting. Look, I've given Jericho into your hand. It's king and the mighty men of valor. You'll march around the city. All the men of war, you'll go around the city once, and this you'll do for six days, and then seven priests will bear seven trumpets of ram's horns, and they'll, they'll be in front of the ark. But the seventh day, you'll march around the city seven times, and the priests will blow the trumpets. Woo! <laughs> Verse 5. It'll come to pass that when they make a loud blast of the ram's horn, and when you hear the sound of the trumpet, that you'll tell all the people to shout with a great shout or with joy, then the wall of the city will fall down flat. And the people will go up every man straight before him. This is just a bizarre strategy. This is strange. And God's happy about it. He said, I, I love how he says, look, like to Joshua, look, look, I've given you the city. Sometimes, sometimes when God tells me to look, I'm like, because ah. <laughs> I guess he sees stuff I don't see. I don't know. Because I just see a strong fortress. I see an, an entrenched enemy. I see the cost of regression. But, but, but God's like, hey, check it out. Look, look. And, and, and part of what God sees, see, because we're, we're, we have one perspective. We're out here outside of the wall. And there's this huge wall that we cannot see over. But God sees from heaven. And so God sees down within the wall. And scripture tells us, actually, the previous chapter, that the people's hearts, that the, the heart of the king, the heart of the mighty men of war, that they were melting within them. They were scared to death. Now, Joshua didn't know that. They, they had no clue. All they saw were the walls, but God could see over the walls. He could see the hearts of the people. And sometimes I wonder, like, if we could understand just how scared our enemy was. Sometimes our enemy has more faith <laughs> In our potential than we do Sometimes Sometimes he's battling us And we think that's because we don't have any potential And so we, 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 we give up And we quit but, but God looks down and he sees the faith of the enemy It doesn't even notice the faith of Joshua He sees the faith of the enemy And he says look you got it Because someone believes He doesn't always have to have faith from you Sometimes you borrow the faith from your enemy. And he'll say, look, someone believe. And, and, and Joshua now has to put his faith in the word of God. And it's a crazy plan. And it's bizarre. But he has to put his faith in God's plan if he's going to accomplish what God tells him to accomplish. And by the way, he does. He does end up, we know, most of us know the story. He walks around. They blow trumpets. They, they yell. The walls fall down. But until before we get to that place, this is where I'd like to have Jim and Cheryl just come and share their story. Because I think just even many of us have written marriage. I mean, I just saw so many marriages on, on here. Um, you can use, well, there was a, um, a music stand. Somebody's getting too good about cleaning up. I think Peter must be around here somewhere. Um, and so I've asked them to share because uh, what they went through in their, in their marriage years ago very similar, I think, to this wall. It's like insurmountable, impenetrable. This would typically be game over, um, but but the Lord did a miracle in their lives. So I just wanted them to share. You know them. They're, they're one of us. So give it up for the turn. giving me 15 minutes. That's going to be a miracle. And uh, I know Peter's back there with that marine trigger finger, and he's going to shut my mic off. So I'm going to read most of it, because it is long, but it's a testimony of God's goodness. Jim and I have been married for 41 years this June. It's been a storybook marriage. Slow wife, 
all the wonderful fantasies that authors write about. Wrong. Out of 41 years, but there has been 39 God-filled years. But there's been a couple of years lived in pure health, full of anger, condemnation, shame, outright bitterness and pain, and the sin of unforgiveness. I'm going to tell you a true testimony of the God goodness of God's redemption and God's intervention in what the devil sent out to destroy. I asked God once, how can we minister best to save lives? How can we minister best to save uh, transformation, healing in people's lives? And he said, by your testimony. So I pray that many lives will be healed today through our testimony. I recently told God, if only, if only I had known that every pain, every valley, every trial that I'd gone through would help somebody else to God's glory. I sure would have gone through it with a lot more humility and a lot more gratitude. Um, Paul said, give thanks in all situations. We have a hard time with that one because situations are hard. But we're a selfish bunch, are we not? We want our wounds licked and tended to, not thinking ahead down the line. Just heal me now, Lord, I can't handle anymore. Jimmy and my story began way before we ever met. In the eighth and ninth grade, I had a gorgeous paper boy named Jimmy Turner. Not this one. Oh my goodness, two years after we married, my mother sent me my diary, and in my diary I had written, Mrs. Cheryl Turner, Mrs. Jimmy Turner. God, please let me marry Jimmy Turner when I grow up. Now, if that isn't an Oprah Winfrey moment, what is? <laughs> okay, let's advance. Many years down the line, we met in prison. Now, all of you that's been here two years know we were cops. <laughs> okay. Um, it was instant sparks on both sides. Crazy, really. Even the fact we became a cop the same day, same year, in different agencies for many miles away. Years later, we heard from two different prophets, several years apart, that God had handpicked Jimmy to be my husband. Yes, prophets actually came up and said, God handpicked you for this woman. Our first date was on a Friday, and Jimmy asked me to marry him on the following Sunday. It took him two days to ask me to marry him. <laughs> and we got married three months later. A whirlwind romance, he adopted my two boys, and I accepted the role of being a stepmother to his, his daughter. We had a wonderful marriage for 24 years. Do the math. It's been 16 years since this thing happened. Hardly any arguments, a very good marriage. We loved God, we put him first. We both served in church, Jim a deacon, myself a prayer ministry leader, and we led prayers, years and years of small groups in our home. We were used mightily by God and always looked well, and everything looked well. Then all hell broke loose. And when I say hell broke loose, I mean hell broke loose. Satan entered the scene to kill, steal, and destroy what God himself had put together. I'm partly to blame because it takes two people to make a wonderful marriage. Three, really, because you have to have God in the center of it. You see, I went into a very deep, dark, horrible depression. And it took me almost an entire year to get out of it. That's a long time for depression people. My best friend Joyce, who I love dearly, and I was with almost every single day in my life, her husband and I were both de uh, deputies at the same agency and she lived next door. She died in my car on the way to the hospital. I ran hot, I blew every stop sign, every traffic light there was to get her there because an ambulance that Jimmy had called was delayed and couldn't get to us. In my mind, I thought I had literally given her a heart attack and blamed myself for my actions driving my car like I had lights and sirens in a patrol car, which I didn't. I cried out to Jesus over and over using his name to bring her back from death, but to no avail. I held her precious foot in the ER and they tried to bring her back, praying for God to return her back to earth. But it was not meant to be, she was dead. Jesus had taken her home, no longer to be in mine or Jimmy's lives. I found out a year later the truth of the whole situation. We don't communicate enough. We don't find out. We let the enemy just come in and take us over. The doctor had told me a year later after I went to investigate because I couldn't handle any more of it. I needed to know if I indeed was carrying this guilt to no avail. He said that she had a blood clot in her foot 
and it was going to go to her heart soon. She didn't get to the hospital, and she refused to go in, but that morning she called me and said, I don't feel good. I had always promised her that she'd never die alone. I was able, by God's grace, to keep that promise as she died with me holding her hand. Satan took great advantage of that steep, deep depression I was in. I never communicated even to Jim about what I was going through, the horrible guilt I carried, thinking she died because of my driving. I only pulled away from him and my son and my, grand, my grandchildren. God, I mean, sorry, Jimmy was alone because of my selfishness to withdraw, and he was vulnerable, and Jezebel entered the scene. That's what I'm going to call her because her name is no longer permitted to be used in our lives. For those of you that are wondering right now how I can dishonor my husband by saying he had an affair before all of you and the people watching online, after the trauma and the healing, two more prophets told us, you both are going to be used in due time to help restore marriages and help heal hearts that are shattered by the sin of adultery. Today is the first day in a large setting, and we're going to share this together. I have the mic because it's basically my testimony, and um, Jimmy doesn't like mics. We have um, ministered separately, but never together, so here we are. Um, before I want to say how it all started, is God gives me very prophetic dreams. And one night I had a dream that I took off my beloved wedding ring, and I threw it away, never to be found. We looked and looked and looked. That next morning I woke up and I told Jimmy, and I called my best friend, and I said, Whoa, something is fixing to happen in my marriage. That was a dream from the Lord. It was a warning. But I didn't heed the warning. Now the raw part. And it's raw, guys. Jimmy and I were at an office one day, and I had a feeling come over me in my spirit. And I saw a woman I barely knew. It's hard to explain, but I felt the Lord telling me that woman had an affair with your husband. I went straight to Jimmy and told him what I believed the Lord had revealed to me, and he admitted it. My world fell apart. I had vowed before we'd gotten married that he, if he ever had an affair, to count me out, gone, over, finished. But we're never to vow before God because if we do, we're not in the right place because we never know the plans of God. I reacted totally in the flesh. Pastor Harry spoke this week, and he spoke this week of circumcision, so I'm going to use the word. I'm going to tell you now, I was not a precious, loving, forgiving, holy wife. Lord, no. I wanted to do a second circumcision on Jimmy, but AK-47, and I can shoot one, guys. And Jezebel, oh, honey, I wanted to pull every hair out of her head. I wanted to dismember her and put her in every state in the Union. This redhead and this Indian blood was boiling. But, by the grace of God, I calmed myself down and I emptied half of a bank account, filled my car, got my clothes, grabbed my little dog, and we headed out on the road to start a new life, licking my wounds. But my plans were not God's plans. I only got five miles down the road. Five means grace. I counted it to the penny. I've gone back that place many times. God filled my car, sternly, I might add, with his voice, an auditable voice. Now, I'm 72 years old, and I've heard the auditable voice of God four times, and it's not a voice you really want to argue with. <laughs> I was so shaken, I pulled over beside the road, and I said, God, you have to be kidding me. You want me to do what? Go back to him. Oh no, we gotta have a talk. Okay, so I'm sitting here telling the Lord, I hate him, I will not go back, please don't make me. So I sat there on the side of the road and played my case for quite a while. I wrestled and cried and I begged him, I begged, begged, begged God, don't make me do this again. Not as auditable, but still sternly, go, back to him. Again, I cried, please don't, Lord, make me do this. Then I heard that sweet, sweet, gentle voice of the Holy Spirit that I know so well. He filled the car with his anointing manifestation of goosebumps all over my body, and he said, I have a plan. 
and it'll all be okay. So me and my dog both tucked our tails between our legs. And by this time, I'm exhausted from crying and screaming, and my Lord and Savior, he could have struck me dead for the fit I threw that day, Lord. But I turned around, still angry, and I went home. Jim tried everything he could to calm me. I wanted him in another room as far from me as he could get. I literally was destroyed, and I saw no way to fix this. This horrible betrayal, this pain, this anger, this broken marriage could not be fixed. Now, if that wasn't enough, God said, call her and tell her you forgive her. We're speaking of Jezebel here. I said, what? You want me to do what? But he knows me. He's known me since my mother's womb. He knows my temperament. He knows my personality. He knows my deepest thoughts. And he knows the way that Satan can infiltrate me. Remember, I wanted her dead. I literally wanted her dead. And that is not a place a spirit-filled woman can venture in thought, much less deed. I could not stay in that state of mind, and God knew it. So I called her for the second time. Oh, yeah, I called her one other time. I called her and told her I knew what had happened. I wanted to hear the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth from her because I sure wasn't going to believe this man I was mad at. Well, ladies, bad decision. Bad, bad, bad decision. Her name fit her evil tactics. For now, I had images of the affair thanks to her in my mind and my spirit. And she laid it on pretty thick. She bragged of a gift he had brought her, and the gift was red. My favorite color. Ever since I became a Christian, I love the color of red, the color of Jesus that shed for me. So I went into a red-headed Indian world age, I tell you. I threw every red item I had in my possession out the door. Jewelry, clothes, purses, you name it like a wild woman on a mission as if getting rid of a color could actually heal me or anything around me. So here I am the second time calling her. I forgive you. Somehow the Holy Spirit was with me. Because I finally meant it. I really meant it. I felt it. He gave me grace. He gave me strength to do that. I was very obedient. She told me, I don't need your blankety blank blank forgiveness. And I gently said, you may not now, but there will be a day you'll be glad I gave it to you because I began to pray for her salvation. I found out that she had destroyed five marriages, but she didn't get mine. I said goodbye and out of my life to her. A small healing had begun. A little wound began to get the pus out. You see, forgiveness has beautiful power, tremendous power, healing power. Too bad it took me a lot longer to forgive them than it did for me to forgive her. But it's harder when you spend day in and day out with someone that hurts you so terribly. It was much harder to walk in forgiveness for that. The fact be known, I used her name in arguments for a very long time. I literally cut Jim's legs off many times, but he always held his tongue. He's a gentle spirit. He's a good man. I wanted to cut deep, very deep. I wanted to pay back. He didn't seem to have the pain I did, but I couldn't see his pain. Anyway, one day I brought up her name again, and God said, How long are you going to crucify the man I hand-picked for you? And I said, what did you say? Still licking my wounds. The Lord said, I've forgiven him, and it's time you did too. Again, the voice said, how long are you going to crucify him? It took me literally to my knees, and I asked Jimmy to forgive me. And I told him I would never mention her name again, and it's never happened. True forgiveness is letting go. From that day on, God has used us so many times to minister to hurting marriages. Oh, I need to insert something here. <laughs> You're going to love this sense of humor that God has. He really is a player. 
He really knows how to get things started and how to get things done. Remember Paul? He had to strike him blind to get him to straighten up and listen. Well, exactly three weeks after I first found out about the affair, there was a knock at my door. Now, no one knew of the affair. We'd kept it to ourselves. We battled it on our own. Not even our pastor at the time knew about it. Not even my best friends. So a knock at the door and before me stands a female leader in our church and she said, may I come in and talk to you? Sure, what's going on? She's crying and said, Cheryl, I can't go on this way anymore and this morning I was at an end, I wanted to die. I thought of strongly of taking my life and I picked up the pills and I was going to die. I was going to commit suicide. And she said, I heard the Lord say, go to Cheryl, have her pray for you. So here I am, she said, sure, I'd love to pray for you. What's going on? I pray for a lot of things. Pray for puppies to be, you know, healed. I mean, <laughs> I can pray for anything. Come on now. But I was not prepared for the answer that day. She said, many years ago, I committed adultery and it's eating me alive. I can't keep this to myself any longer. I sat there frozen inwardly. I said, don't do this to me, Lord. Not now. Don't you dare do this to me. I'm not ready. But being the wonderful, sweet, holy, righteous, precious woman of God I am. I said, okay, I'm going to pray for you. Still thinking of my thoughts. Oh, God, you've got to be big enough for this one. Just breathe, Cheryl. So I shook inwardly. She shook outwardly. And I listened to her story, and the Holy Spirit entered the room. The pain, the many suicidal thoughts she'd had, years and years of torment by the devil, sleepless nights and depression and lots of medication. She was so, so sorry for her hidden sin. No one knew about it. It was literally eating her alive. She couldn't stop crying, cried hysterically. And I began to cry. The Holy Spirit entered my spirit with empathy. I felt her pain. So here I am beginning to cry, and I had tremendous empathy for that pain and the horrible weighed-down shame that she carried. Tremendous pain. I had always loved and admired this woman, put her on a pedestal. She had it all together, and I really assumed a very sweet marriage. But God had to show up quickly because her husband was a victim just like I was a victim. And victims don't always see clearly. But God immediately showed me the victim in her. I had to take my eyes off of her to do what the Holy Spirit wanted me to do by being a prayer intercessor and a prayer warrior. I had a job to do. Satan himself, the enemy, had her captive and in strong chains and had for years and years. Boy, does God have a sense of humor, but his ways are greater than our ways. And the word says when he starts something, he finishes it. So she confessed her sins to me and we prayed those chains and shame away. And we paid them right back to hell. And she walked out a free woman. My ministry began that day. And then, of course, as God is God, he sent another and another and another marriage that needed to be healed from adultery. I would often cry out as I was ministering to these women. How? How can you trust me, God, when I'm not even healed? Because I wasn't. I was operating only through the power of the Holy Spirit. It took another year, yep, another year, for me to realize how truly the word of God means and what it says. The devil runs to and fro across the earth to see who he can kill, steal, and destroy. He is an expert at setting traps to destroy lives and marriages and families. I truly have forgiven my husband, and I have changed many things in my life to become a better wife. I took responsibility for my part as well. The first day that I truly, truly knew that I was healed, 
I walked into a department store and I saw a beautiful, gorgeous red coat. I bristled for a second. Then the Holy Spirit flowed over me like a waterfall. It was just my size put in a place for me to see. A true test. No doubt about it. So I put it on and I felt free from hurt. Flow, love flowed through me like a waterfall that I just could not believe through every fiber of my being. I was now once again covered in the red blood of the Lamb to do God's will. Let's give God a hand clap. Unforgiveness is downright dangerous. It can make your spirit feeble and your prayers ineffective. It will pull the plug on your faith so completely that you won't have enough power to move the molehills in your life, much less mountains. And I want to be a mountain mover. I want to be acting in forgiveness, and I choose to forgive. You know that you know you can truly forgive someone when you can bless them and speak good of them regarding what has hurt you so badly. Forgiveness does not seek revenge, but rather virtue. Satan can't stand to see a forgiving heart because every time he does, he sees an image of an infallible God in a fallible human being. I have learned the act of forgiveness. I have conquered the art of offense. I have walked in obedience to God's word. I no longer wrestle with God or plead my case. He knows best, always and always. His plans far exceed our thoughts and our actions. Our marriage is healed. It has been transformed into the kind of love that God meant for a married couple to have. We walk now in a deeper love and deeper respect and higher than cherishing each other than we've ever had available to that other couple before it all happened. God is bigger and he is so big for any circumstance, he's enough. Adultery, adultery is no greater sin than lying, cheating, stealing, you name it. His arms stretch far and wide in repentance of sin, as far as the east is to the west. So guys, choose this day whom you will serve. Choose God's forgiveness, walk, and refuse to walk in shame, for that is a very dangerous, mean demon to contend with. Once you've confessed your sin and asked forgiveness, Shame should flee and stay gone, as Harry said well ago. We are not meant to carry shame after repentance. Jimmy and I will always be here to pray with you. God bless you. I don't know what there is to say. Um, we have an amazing marriage. greatest walls that you're ever going to face is the wall of unforgiveness. One of the greatest enemies and oldest probably, layer upon layer upon layer, would be the enemy of unforgiveness or bitterness. Um, but I love I love their story because you can tell there's there's none of that there, even though there there's wrong done and, and they've acknowledged that. But there's no there's no wall of unforgiveness. And so I, I think it's a beautiful picture of what God wants to do with each and every marriage here, certainly. Um, not only marriages, though. Every, every one of us have been offended in some way. Every one of us have had walls built up. We think we're trying to protect ourselves. Um, but many times, though, the wall has been built by the enemy, and it's a stronghold. It's a stronghold that he uses to keep you in bondage, to keep reminding you of that, whether it's shame or bitterness, to keep bringing it up in your mind, to keep you locked in uh, to his way of living. I was talking to the Lord about that this week, actually, in prayer. I was just like, God, you know, uh, did you ever did you ever suffer from being forsaken? You know? And then, of course, I remembered we're just coming up on Lent which is the season where Jesus is about to be crucified. We're remembering that season. And in the Gospels, 
it's very clear that when Jesus was arrested, when they cuffed him, uh, that all the disciples ran away from him. And so the Lord kind of said to me, he said, well, actually, they ran from me. They didn't slowly back away. Um, <laughs> they took off. And I said, so how did, it, how did it feel, you know, when you were forsaken by people that you were trusting in, when you were betrayed, as Judas betrayed? You know, how did, how did that feel? And I just felt like the Lord said to me, so I, I, I wouldn't call it betrayal. And I said, well, yeah, of course you wouldn't because you're God, but I call it what it is, right? I mean, I, I just I just call a spade a spade. And he said, no, that's not what I called it. And he said, you need to look up the scripture and see what I called it. And the Lord reminded me of the scripture where Jesus said, uh, now the Son of Man is about to be glorified. And, um, and I, I thought of that and I thought, right there, it says, now the Son of Man is about to be glorified. And I said, well, Lord, you know, about to be glorified, right? I mean, of course, you're about to be glorified. I mean, you're about to get whipped with the cat of nine tails. Then you're about to be crucified. Then you're going to be dead for three days. Then you're going to rise from the dead. And then you're going to ascend to heaven. And you're going to be seated at the right hand of the Father. Yes, you are about to be glorified. And the Lord said, no, that's not what I, that's not what I said. So I had to, had to go to the online Bible and search up the about to be glorified. And if you notice, it says, now the Son of Man is glorified, not about to be glorified. And actually the word glorified is in the past tense. So really what he's saying is now the Son of Man was just right now glorified. It's just right now glorified. What happened? Well, so when he had gone out, who's he? That's Judas. If you read verse 30, you find out that Jesus says to Judas, what you must do, go ahead and do it quickly. And Judas, when Judas had left him, when Judas had made the betrayal secure, when Judas had pulled the last straw, Jesus said, now, right there, you guys don't even know it yet because you don't know what Judas is going to go do, but right there, I was just glorified. Like, not on the cross, not in Gethsemane, not as he's, as now neither he's, when he rises again from the dead. I mean, how about that moment, Lord? No, no. The moment that Jesus de defines as his most glorious is the moment when somebody betrayed him and he instantly forgave him. Because Jesus could have stopped him. Jesus, you know, could have just blown a blow dart in his back. <laughs> <laughs> nothing to see here, people. Nothing to see here. <laughs> just fell out and the spirit just let him be. You know what I mean? I mean Jesus knows what he's doing. He knows. He's not just leaving him to go to another ministry. He's leaving him to go plot his death. The guy he spent three years pouring into, the guy that he trained up in the ministry, the guy that he spoke to and, and loved and prayed with. I mean, Jesus knows this guy's parents. He knows this guy's brothers and sisters. He knows his family. He's been walking and living with them. And this guy is going to go turn him in to the people who couldn't find him so that they'll be able to find him in the middle of the night. This is the only way that Jesus is going to get crucified. And Judas takes off, and Jesus says, just got to tell you guys, you're not going to get it right now, but you'll get it later. I was just glorified. I was not forsaken. I was not betrayed. I was glorified. <laughs> Hold up. How can you say that? Well, he says, and God is glorified in me. If God is glorified in me, God will also glorify me within himself. In other words, I don't look glorious, but God was just glorified. And if I glorify God, God will lift me up. If I lift God up, God will lift me up. And he says, immediately, we'll glorify him immediately. It's happening right now. And that's what forgiveness does. That's the power of forgiveness. Because to glorify means to unveil, means to pull back the cover and see what's really there. And so to glorify means to lift off the, the, the cover of your humanity and allow people to see God. And Jesus said right there, right there, it's not at the cross, it's not when I rise from the dead, it's not when I ascend into heaven and angels are floating around. No, the greatest glory that I ever got was when somebody who I trusted betrayed me. And I forgave him instantly. As he's, as he's going to do what he's going to do.
And that brings me back to the walls of Jericho. Uh, can, can we put the picture of the walls there? It's really interesting to me to note how Jesus, God tells the children of Israel, he says, you're going to walk around, you're going to blow trumpets, you're going to shout, and then the walls are going to fall down, and then you're going to go in. Well, if you look at this graph, even if the walls fall down, there is a 12-foot wide moat and a six feet, it's six feet deep. All the way around that thing, how are they going to go in? It's kind of curious. But when the, when the archaeologists discovered the fallen wall, they noted something strange, that the wall fell outward. <laughs> I just, maybe it's just me, but a 17-foot wall and a 12-foot wide moat. <coughs> Basically, the barricade became a bridge. So, so it's almost like as the Canaanites were building that wall, God's like, how about... How about you make it a little bit taller? A little bit taller, a little bit, a little bit, a little bit. Okay, good, 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 good. A little bit thick, yeah, thicker. It needs to be thicker because all these Israelites are going to be walking on top of that thing. So it needs to be thicker. Let's get four feet's not enough. We got to go six feet here, right? Because God was overseeing the construction, not just of a wall, but of a bridge. <laughs> and God will use the barricades in your life and turn them into bridges just as he used the hurt and betrayal in their life and turn it into a testimony to bless other people who are also going through the same thing. That's why Jesus said, I was just glorified. I was just lifted up because I've never had to forgive anybody for anything like this. I've never put my... God never put his life in somebody else's hands. <laughs> but he did there. And there's something about, there's something about betrayal. There's something about the opportunity for offense. And when you deny that, it breaks down kinds of walls in your life that you cannot break down any other way. And it leads you to the next level, to the next level. So I would just like to offer a prayer with you right now. If you would bow your head and close your eyes. As we've been talking, maybe there's somebody coming to your mind you need to forgive. Maybe it's a spouse. Maybe, maybe they're in this room. Maybe they're not in this room. Maybe they're not even alive anymore. <laughs> maybe you're still mad at somebody who's dead. <laughs> maybe it's something you hadn't even thought of, and it's just coming to your mind. And you're like, yeah, I go back to that place occasionally. There's a fortress. I let, I let a little bit of anger grow into a little bit of bitterness, which grew into 20-foot walls in my heart. I don't know how to get that thing out. Maybe the Holy Spirit's just revealing that. You've been walking around the, the land of your mind and your heart. You didn't even know that it was there. But there's a fortress there. The enemy has been persecuting you from that place. Forgiveness is first and foremost a choice, which is why they had to walk. God wasn't going to drive them around Jericho. They had to walk. So you have to take that step and you have to commit to that journey. It's not just something you do once. It's something you do right now. It's something you do tonight. It's something you do tomorrow morning. It's something you do tomorrow afternoon. It's, it's a journey. It's a step. And it's a step. presence of God is offering to go with you along the way. They never walked around Jericho alone. It was always with the Ark of the Covenant. The presence of God was right there with them. And as they walked around, God said, I want you to blow trumpets. Why would they blow a shofar is what they call it in, in the Hebrew. They, the, the blowing of the shofar signals, it's, a, it's something they would blow when they, when they were coronating a new king. That's, that's really the next step in forgiveness. Committing to the journey and getting off the throne of your life. And welcoming in King Jesus. He can call the shots. Lord, we want to glorify the Father. We want the Father to be glorified in us. He can call the shots. He is King. And if he wants Judas to leave us, 
And if he wants, if this is his plan, if this is his cup, if Judas is supposed to leave us, if we're, we're, we're supposed to go through this trial, Lord, we don't fight it. We don't, we, don't, we don't get bitter at you. We don't get angry at the people who are doing the persecuting. We simply submit ourselves to the Father. So we first of all resign ourselves from our place of authority, our seat on the throne. And we put Jesus at the, at the top of our lives. And what he wants to have happen, that's what we want. That's what we want to have happen. We want him to be unveiled and him to be glorified and him to be seen and him to be known and him to be heard and him to be felt. We want him. We want him in South Austin. We want him in our families. We want him in our schools. We want, we want him in our churches, actually. We want, we want him in our prayer meetings. We want, we want him in our homes. We want him in our families. We want him in our discussions. We want him in our conversations. We want him in our entertainment. We want him in our emotions. We want him in our minds. We want him so that he's before us and behind us and around us and beside us and over us and under us and surrounding us completely. We want Jesus Christ. We want the Father to be glorified and to be seen. If we are seen, we, people will continue to get the wrong idea about you. But you need to be seen. You need to be seen. You need to be known. People have rejected church, not because they rejected you. They just never saw you. They just saw a bunch of fallen people. And it's because we didn't unveil. We didn't allow ourselves to be real enough to allow Jesus to be seen and his glory to be seen and his goodness. So we want you to be seen. So we give up our place on the throne of our lives and we allow you to come in. And if there's any unforgiveness in our hearts, Lord, we choose right now to, to release those people, to release them. They don't ever have to pay us back. They don't ever have to come say they're sorry. They don't ever, they don't ever have to stub their toe on the end of their bed tonight at midnight. We're never going to wish evil on them. In fact, we want them to go to heaven. We want them to join us in eternity with God. And, and, and we want them to be saved. We want them to take the land that you have made for them. Regardless of whatever they've done for us, we release them, we forgive them. We drop this burden of, of, of bitterness. We trust you to take down the walls that we cannot take down. Use, use our tragedy for your testimony. In Jesus' name.